0: thank you for this evening. It is a joy to be with one another and certainly a joy to be with you and to study your word. And this evening, as we bring to a close uh, Yom Kippur, it's, it's doubly significant that we would reflect on the meaning and significance of prayer. So Father, help us as we go through, further go through this material. And may our congregation as a result uh, become more and more a congregation that prays. So we pray these things in Messiah's name. Amen. Okay, uh, Roman numeral eight. So <clears throat> I'm still not sure uh, how many more meetings we're going to have. Uh, right, This is our fourth, so we'll see how far we get tonight. Um, we may finish this tonight. Yeah, just talk fast. Uh but then there's another section that I want to do dealing with controversial issues with prayer, uh, regarding prayer, especially as we relaunch our prayer ministry team after, after service. And another thing that I'm praying about, thinking about, is uh, just starting to have a prayer meeting here on a regular basis. How frequently? I'm not sure, but I think that would be an important thing for us to do too. But in any case, let's take a look at our material this this evening. Um, First of all, with regard to the qualifications for one who prays, first is reverence, which I'm not experiencing much of this evening right now, but uh, reverence. The uh, Hebrew scriptures emphasize the need for reverence in approaching God. Here are some passages you can write down. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 5 to 10. It's okay, I repeat. Um, first of all, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. And then in First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 5 uh, to 10. And then in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 5, Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. So, uh, but the point is, in all these verses, and that's a particularly key one, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we must do so with uh, reverence. Second thing is that in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, God is addressed as our Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And when he is so referred to, this speaks of his infinite greatness or loftiness, his everlasting immortality, we might say. So when we recite the words, our Father who is in heaven, it's not a statement about location. He's there, I'm here. It's a statement about his, um, his loftiness, that he is... Uh, g- great in every respect he is infinite in his greatness and with regard to his uh... with regard to his glory third um, <clears throat> oh I'm, coming, I'm going too fast here okay this is all under the first point under reverence and uh, reflection therefore on the majesty power and purity of god leads to a reverent attitude in prayer. So reflecting on his majesty, on his power, and on his purity leads one to a reverent attitude in prayer. Secondly, when we come to God in prayer, we want to do so with sincerity. First of all, Yeshua denounced the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy in prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, as well as in Mark chapter 12, verse 40. So on the one hand, Yeshua denounced the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy in prayer, but the scriptures also speak positively of the need for sincerity in prayer. You see this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. You see it in Luke chapter 11, verses five to eight. You also see it in Luke chapter 18, verses one to seven. So in Matthew chapter six, Mitch, if you could just turn down the treble on this a little bit. In Matthew chapter six, verse seven and eight, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the point is that there needs to be sincerity in prayer. The religious leaders of Yeshua's day were denounced because of their hypocrisy on this score. The scriptures also tell us positively to be sincere in our prayers and not thinking that because we speak much, God will necessarily hear us because of that. Matthew 6, 7 and 8, Luke chapter 11 verses 5 to 8 and Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 7. Yeshua himself prayed with loud cries and tears according to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. That is a reflection of the sincerity of his prayer. He hurt, he was disturbed, and thus when he prayed, the manner in which he prayed reflected that. You know, we've all been in a situation where uh, we share our burden, uh, 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 something that is of a concern to us. Somebody prays with us and simply says, well, God is in control. You don't have to be worried about anything. Well, Yeshua knows that his father's in control of everything. Uh, Yet, despite that, he still prayed with loud cries, pleadings, and tears. Indeed, in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we find that Peter, when he was arrested, and the believers were gathered to pray for him, were told that they prayed earnestly for him. They didn't just sit down and pray, so Lord, you know, deliver him, if it be your will, kind of thing. They earnestly entreated God Uh, because their prayer was sincere, and the manner in which they prayed reflected the sincerity of their heart, their pain, their anguish, their concern, their desire. We read in uh, James chapter 5, verse 15, that Elijah, when he prayed, prayed fervently. So all of these Descriptions of the manner in which these godly men prayed, no, no, no less than Yeshua himself, all reflected great emotionalism and sincerity in their prayer. And they didn't dismiss the pain, the anguish, the concern that they had on the basis of the faith that they also had, because their faith was exhibited by their prayers. And yet they still prayed with loud cries and tears earnestly and fervently. So it wasn't something that was done with a sort of a stoic attitude. The third thing that is a qualification for meaningful prayer, scripture makes note to us, is a submissive will. When we recognize the sovereignty of God, we realize that that recognition demands that human desire be submissive to his will. This is Yeshua's prayer, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, where he says, if it is possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. It wasn't a prayer of resignation. Since my will won't be done, I guess I have to do your will. It was a prayer of submission. Lord, whatever your will is, that's what I want to do. But it did not keep him from expressing his own desires in the manner. So we certainly can express our desires. Our desire is that, and I think we talked about this, our desire might be that somebody is healed. Our desire might be that someone's need is provided for. But in the final analysis, it's not according to our will that we want things to be answered. It's in accordance with his will that we want our prayers to be answered. And that is an attitude of submission uh, to the Lord. But insofar as the will of God is known, submission then involves embracing that will and desiring that his will be done as it is in heaven. So in a a way, what, what submission is, is to the degree to which we know what God's will is in a matter, we want to submit ourselves to that will. And we want to desire that that will is what is done, and not necessarily what might be less painful or costly uh, for us. First John chapter five, verse 14, uh, highlights that last point. First John chapter five, verse 14. A fourth thing that Scripture speaks about is uh, the need for faith. So Yeshua said, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Matthew 21, verse 21. James says the same thing negatively in James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So James tells us, if, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must uh, believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all he does." But here's the caveat that one must understand, that when faith is made mention as a condition of prayer, it involves an inward conviction of the truth of three things. Number one, it said faith is, in regard to what Yeshua is saying, ask in prayer, it will be given you. James says we shouldn't be double-minded asking, doubting, But the question is, what is it we are to have faith in and what is it that we ought not to doubt? These passages are not teaching we ought to have faith in what we pray and not doubt what we pray about. That's not what the scripture is saying. What the scripture is saying is that our faith must be in, first of all, in the truth of God's existence. So on the one hand, we must be convinced that indeed God is real and that he is responsive to us and that he's hearing uh, our prayer and he's concerned for us. So the faith in which we must ask and the thing that we must not doubt is not our prayer. In other words, thinking that you hear this all the time, if we pray that God will take this away from my life or will provide this for me, don't doubt that he will do that and you'll receive it. That's not what these passages mean. What these passages mean is we can ask God for anything, but our trust must be in him and in his will to provide whatever is in accordance with his will. And so he tells us, first of all, that we must pray with the inward conviction of the reality of God's existence. Of course, that's first and foremost. Secondly, faith in the reality of his power, that he certainly has the means and the ability to make the difference that we may be requesting of him. And thirdly, that he is compassionate and benevolent and thus would look out for our interest even as we are reflecting upon it. Now, there may be reasons why God would determine that it is not in our interest to provide what we believe is in our interest. And that's something we, don't, we can't see off the bat. As we go down the road a little bit, maybe we will. Sometimes, we never will. I mean, people who um, have chronic illnesses or have to deal with a person who uh, has a chronic illness or has uh, limitations and physical handicaps of one kind or another. It may never be that we will ever understand in this life why it is that those individuals are struck with those kinds of things. We just may not understand. And that's why faith must ultimately rest in the existence of God, the benevolence of God, the power that God has, and also the wisdom that he possesses. And so there must be reason for it though we may not know uh, in this life or in this world. Mitch. Well, certainly he does introduce it with that, right, if anyone. But then I think he, and while that may be preeminent, when he then says a double-minded man will receive nothing, that seems to open the door to a broader sense of the principle that is involved. Double um, all God do Well, you know, I, I'm not ready to go into a whole study on James, but the the way that you know I look at these things, and James is a very like like the letters of John, and for that matter, the um, the letter written to the Jewish believers, the book of Hebrews. They're all very black and white statements, right? Uh, there's no um, th- there's no middle ground in in their writing, um, and James reflects that here. He says even earlier, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. So the whole introduction of this section is the issue of facing trials of diverse kinds, right? And he says, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. Now he speaks about something that one might lack if you lack wisdom. And it may very well be... That the wisdom he's talking about here is not just the general, the general, uh, awareness of the ability to think deeply and seriously about something, but rather the, the, if one doubts the wisdom regarding the effect that trials can have in one's life, right? That's the issue here. Where he says, uh, whatever trials you experience, they are ordered of God to bring about a point of maturity. So therefore, endure it, persevere in it, because there's a good purpose that God is working in and through you during that trial. Now, if anyone lacks wisdom regarding what I've just said, the Lord will then enable you to, will provide that wisdom for you, and you will come to understand it. And then he says, and if Uh, But if you ask for this wisdom, that is, understanding the role that trials can have in our life, if you ask for that kind of wisdom, then we have to ask, not doubting, that God is the kind of God who uses trials and mishaps and challenges in our life to produce those good things. Otherwise, we are then being double-minded, Why? Because we are not trusting in God with regard to who he is as he is revealed to us. So the scriptures revealed to us that God is a benevolent God, a powerful God, an omniscient God, and an existing God. So if we go through trials, and what do trials tend to do? They tend to to raise... Questions about God's very character. And so we say things like, How is it possible for God to be good and allow this to happen to me or even do this to me? How can we believe God is all powerful when He does not take this away from me? How can we believe that God really exists when it appears that things are just happening to me outside of anyone's control? And so what James, I think, might be saying, and I'm just, this, these are just my thoughts as I'm talking with you. But what James might be saying, then, is when you go through trials and you can't see what God is doing in and through the trials for you, then ask God to show you. But when you ask God to show you, if you're not asking with a sense of trust in who he is, well, then you ought not to expect to receive. That's a very interesting thing. That's tag. what I think he might, he might a, be saying. At least it's a possibility. Tag, yeah. So let me, uh, let, let's me let let move on. So we're talking about faith. So let me just come back to reiterate that when Yeshua says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's not having faith in what it is you're asking. It's faith in the character of God as, as it is revealed in Scripture to us that we implicitly trust. And one of those qualities is the wisdom of God So that therefore, if our prayer is not answered as we might like it to be answered, we have to then realize that it's not answered because the all-wise Lord of the universe knows what is ultimately best for us. And therefore, um, we may not have the answer or the response from God that we would like. So I just want to come back to that statement, if you have faith. It's faith in, in God and not in our prayer. So now I mentioned three things, that such faith must be in the existence of God, the power of God, and belief in God as one who is benevolent. So let me give you a couple of pa- some passages for each one. First of all, with regard to belief in the existence of God, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, verse 6. Tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Romans chapter ten, verse fourteen, let me turn there. Romans ten fourteen. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? So here's the idea of faith, uh, prece- uh, belief in, and faith in the existence of God. Romans uh, eleven six. Let me just make sure that I made reference to that passage right. Uh, and without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those, there's the idea of benevolence, compassion, who earnestly seek him. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and the other was Romans chapter 10, verse 14. So ultimately, in these contexts that we just saw, faith in these contexts means acceptance of the revelation about God, which has been given to us. Then there are passages that speak about belief in the power of God. So for example, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So that's Faith in the power of God by which he created the world. Uh, that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Another passage is found in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 8 through 10. Matthew 8, verses 8 through 10. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, he does this. And when uh, Yeshua heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So he understood the power that Messiah had. Um, No, these aren't on there. These
1: yeah. Okay. On several occasions, you've said things that could have been put in the one, two, or three items in the, in, the, in, the, in the of God. So I'm
0: just waiting for you to
1: put up there what you actually want in these boxes.
0: Oh, um, no, What what's going on with uh, What I'm giving... Uh, let me look. Yeah, so that's why I haven't written anything yet. Uh, oh, oh, uh, oh okay. Thank you. Um, I'm just trying to be be as confusing as possible. Okay, so we've got A, B, and C. Uh, Oh, faith, right? Letter D was faith. So one, two, and three is in the existence of God in the power of God and in the compassion and benevolence of God. I don't know if it's up there. Oh, it is. Sorry. Okay, so I'm staying right here for a minute because now I'm giving you passages that relate to, you can put to the side, uh, that relate to the existence of God. And that was Hebrews 11, verse 6. No, no, I didn't. I know I got that right. Uh, 11, verse 6. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 14. And then the third thing I said is that faith in this context means acceptance of the revelation of God, which has been provided in the scripture. Okay, so now the second point here is in the power of God. And I gave you, uh, first of all, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, that by faith we believe that the world was created by God, so that the things that are seen were not, uh, how does he put it? Well, you never know. You know what the scripture says: "Be ready in season and out of season." By faith, you sound like my students. Can I? Can we look at our notes? You'll know, you, you know, you cannot believe how often I said "absolutely," and then they come in and, like Jag, they didn't fill in their blanks. They didn't have their notes done, and so they were hung anyway. Which I always was very happy about. You know, it's always I, what did she say? <laughs> By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So that's Hebrews eleven three. The second one that I gave about the centurion was Matthew chapter eight verses eight through ten. And the idea is the power of God that um, the centurion said, look, if I can command these troops to do what I tell it, you have the power, the authority to command whatever is going on in the world, and it's going to have to obey you as well. So I know that you can heal my uh, servant or my daughter uh, just by a word. You don't need to come under my roof. And then uh, another passage is Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. And so as Yeshua went on from there, Jericho, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe I have the power to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And so faith uh, requires belief in the existence of God, but also believe in the power of God. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 19. Another passage in Matthew chapter 9, verses 17 through 24. And this is where when um, one's daughter, a ruler's daughter had just died, died. And he says, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. So Yeshua got up, went with him, and so did his disciples. And then we read about the woman who touched him and experienced the healing. But um, in verse 23, when Yeshua entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noise, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And afterward, the crowd had been put outside. He went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up, and news of this spread through all that region. But what's interesting in this section is where Yeshua acknowledges the lack of faith in his ability to bring healing. A fifth passage is found in Romans chapter 5, verse, chap, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. And so in in Romans chapter 4, speaking about Abraham having a son, verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded God had the power to do what he had promised. And that's the key, right? Uh, God promised Abraham a son through Sarah. And he knew that God had the power to do that. That doesn't mean that Ed, he doesn't promise to heal every one of us. He doesn't make that promise. Otherwise, we, like Abraham, could have uh, faith that God will make good on his promises. But what he does promise, we certainly are to have faith and trust in. And as we pray about those things, certainly God will provide. But Abraham had this specific promise. God has not made those promises in general to us. So faith with regard to the existence of God meant acceptance of the revelation about God that's given in his word. Faith with regard to the power of God is a sense of confidence that nothing is beyond God's ability. The third uh, aspect of faith or context of faith is in the compassion and benevolence of God. And so scripture reveals that God is willing to provide help in the context of faith, knowing that he uh, is one who exists, who has power, and now who is benevolent. James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, we looked at that passage. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we looked at that. Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 through 28 reveals that God is willing to provide help in the context of faith. Matthew 15, verses 22 to 28. It also has to be remembered that faith in God's benevolence does not exist apart from an awareness of his holiness and of our own sinfulness. They all come together. What we tend to do to talk about these things is to compartmentalize them. So we we talk about God being benevolent. We talk about God being holy. We talk about our own sin and our own need, such as we did last night at a Yom Kippur service. But all of that is true at the same time. So when we think about having faith in God's benevolence, we also have to remember at the very same time, we're having faith in God's holiness, as well as realizing we are sinful. Therefore, genuine faith in God's benevolence is necessarily faith in Yeshua. So having faith in God's benevolence means having faith in Yeshua. Why? Because Messiah is the one who removes the barrier of sin between us and God and provides us with with his spirit that empowers us to obedience. So ultimately, the faith with which is essential for prayer is faith in the finished work of the Messiah Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 it is in faith in uh, apart from his work of redemption all of that is included and connected in the idea of trusting god to bring about the kinds of things we might pray about so when faith refers to belief In what we know in Revelation concerning the nature of God and the work of Messiah, it's easy then to see why doubt makes prayer ineffective. To doubt God's existence or power or benevolence is to deny God himself. And it's to deny the redemptive work of the Messiah because his redemptive work is the greatest act of God's benevolence and the greatest demonstration of God's power. And certainly is the manifestation of God's existence. As he said to Thomas, those who have seen me have seen the Father. So it's all wrapped up in trust in what Messiah has done for us. Because that kind of trust reveals our faith in God's power, he's provided redemption, God's benevolence, he's seen our need, and in God's existence, I, Messiah says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So faith in God, respecting these three qualities, ultimately is faith in Yeshua and what he's done for us. Not in the request we're asking the Lord to respond to. In this context, you take a look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17 and verse 27. So ultimately, to think of God as unwilling to help is to imply that evil people, people dead in trespasses and sins, who reply to the needs or pleas of their children are ultimately better than God himself. And in this context, take a look at Matthew chapter 7. Verses 9 to 11. Yeshua says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, uh, how much more so will uh, the Lord provide for those who trust him? Let's take a look exactly how that is stated. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. He says, ask it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. For anyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open." Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, I think this is so uh, remarkable, Yeshua says this, if you then, though you are evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So to think of him as unwilling to help is to imply that evil men and women who respond to the pleas of their children are better than God himself. So we have to realize that while God may not answer every one of our prayers the way we would like, It's not because he lacks benevolence or lacks power or existence, but it's because God's will for us has something else in mind, and it ultimately is for our best interest. And again, we come back to Yeshua's prayer. If it be your will, may this cup, the judgment of God that I must drink, may it pass, but not my will be done. But your will, according to your will. Further, another um, requirement is is obedience. How do we get this? This is all going too fast. This is the power of God, right? Okay. Oh, I see. It's just all up there. Huh? All right. we need to fix that PowerPoint slide. Obedience is another uh, qualification for the one who. Who prays? So, first of all, there are a number of passages in which the, um, the effectiveness of prayer is said to depend upon the works of the one who prays. So, Psalm 26, verse 1 says there is a need for us to walk in integrity. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So there's a need to be walking in integrity. Secondly, um, there's a need to have a forgiving spirit and to be forgiving others. Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter six. In verses 14 and 15, Messiah says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive yours. So forgiveness is key, uh, or one of the qualifications. This is a reflection of obedience. Remember, we are called by Messiah to forgive others. So forgiveness is an act of obedience, and failure to forgive is an act of disobedience. By the way, you can take a look at Mark 11, verse 25 and Matthew chapter 18 verses 23 to 25 also 23 to 35 Mark 11:25 Matthew 18:23 to 35 First John tells us that we need to be ones who are determined or devoted to pleasing God and so in First John chapter 3 verse 22 Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So there's a need to walk in integrity. There's a need to forgive. There's a need to be obedient so as to please him, to bring delight to him. 1 John three twenty two, And there's a need to abide in him. 1 John three twenty four. Those who obey his commands live in him. And he lives in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So obedience to the commands of God, willingness to forgive others are products, not causes of salvation. They are evidences that we have experienced new life. Theological term is regeneration by which we gain the right to call upon God as our father. That's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, since obedience, willingness to forgive, desire to please God, abiding in him, are evidences that we have experienced new life, then it is appropriate to speak of obedience as a condition of prayer, when obedience is understood as evidence of true repentance a change of heart and will. In other words, only those who are truly born again can pray effectively. So uh, now, that's not to say God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. He knows everything. He hears everything. That's not the point. The point is prayer is more than just words ascending to the throne of God. It is interaction, conversation, conversation. It is communion with God. It is asking requests, but also giving him praise. It is making known our needs, but also expressing our joy in him and his glory. And therefore, to speak of obedience as a condition of prayer is, is appropriate when we realize that those acts of obedience are evidences of true repentance and a changed heart and a new life. So now we, we look at Roman numeral uh, 9. Let's see if we can get through. It. Which is the content of prayer. So, first of all, there's this idea of praying scripture. While one may pray the prayers of Scripture, prayer does not need to be limited to these. But we do see this happening in the Scripture. For example, for example, in Ephesians chapter five, verse nineteen, most scholars believe this is an early uh, psalm, and uh, and a reflection that the early believers prayed the psalms. In Ephesians chapter five, verse uh, 19, where he says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. So we are to speak to one another with psalms. So the early believers prayed psalms we find in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we, f- we see the prayer that was prayed for Peter. So I'm saying while one may pray the prayers of Scripture and one may transpose Scripture into prayers, one isn't limited to doing that. Of course, we understand that. And these are just some examples. Ephesians 5, 19, Acts chapter 12, 5, as prayer was... Uh, was offered for Peter's deliverance in Romans chapter one verses nine and ten. Paul's prayers, an expression of his desire to visit Rome, and in Philippians chapter four verse six, we're told that that which causes us anxiety are to be made matters of prayer. Um, Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 any anxiety that we may experience are to be made matters of uh, prayer we're to pray about now Matthew chapter 7 verses 7 to 8 we have that statement we saw it earlier whenever the promise is made that anything asked in prayer will be granted the anything is qualified always qualified in one way or another Matthew chapter seven, verses seven to eight, God will grant anything that is asked in faith or in the name. And these are three things we're going to look at in a minute. The qualification for the words anything is generally understood to relate to one of three possibilities. That is to say, God will grant anything that is asked in faith or anything asked in the name of Messiah or anything in accordance with his will. So first of all, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 22 and 24 shows us that the anything is limited by faith. But in Matthew 11, verse 22 and 24, the faith that is spoken of here is not a leap in the dark, but it has ground in some kind of objective truth. In Matthew 11, the faith that prayer will be answered is connected to faith in God who answers prayer. And so here in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark, I have Mark 11:22 and 24, and I keep saying Matthew. In Mark 11 verses 22 to 24, uh, such faith in the God who answers prayer is faith in God's ability and willingness to answer prayer, as well as having the confidence that he has the wisdom to answer prayer the right way. So this faith in God is directly connected to the revelation which is made regarding his will. So when we pray for things, and he says, ask anything in faith, He's telling us that we have to be one who trusts God ultimately with our prayer. Not that he's going to do whatever we ask, but he's going to do what is the right thing to be done. And we are invited to pray what we might like to see done, knowing that God, who is all wise, will do what is in our best interest. So the promise then here in Mark's account that it is prayer uh, offered in faith rests upon what has been revealed about God himself, his nature, and his promises. It is not faith that anything can happen, but the confidence that what God has promised will happen. So we have to be very careful when we see these words, anything, we think, we we understand that, uh, in a literalistic manner, meaning he'll do anything we want. But it isn't that. It's faith in a God who will do what he's promised to do. Not that anything can happen, but what will happen is what he determines and what he has promised.
1: This is what's been driving me crazy for about 37 years as a whole laborer.
0: I'm glad to add to Thank you. I appreciate that. that.
1: You're, you're earning your, your salary this week.
0: <laughs> in the English,
1: it's inescapably problematic. I, I, I have not made a study on this in the Greek, and I should. Um, we all should, because it is, to me, a maddening passage. You have God saying that be taken up this mountain and cast into the sea, don't doubt, believes what he says, it will be granted him, and that's in italics, so I don't know what means. You know, what was missing in the Greek, uh, or what was substituted for it. The implication being that it is a function of a request, it is a response to a request, okay? Then it goes on to say, therefore, and, and in the English it's imperative, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask Believe, this is an imperative, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. It seems like, again, in the English, the onus is on the individual. And it implies a necessity by the believer to muster faith.
0: Where am I wrong? Well, no, I don't think you're wrong about the need to have faith. The question is, faith in what, and what is the nature of that faith? It isn't that anything goes. It is that what will occur has to do with one's trust in the God who is going to bring that thing about. Remember, it's not our prayer that does anything. It's God who does whatever is done in response to his will, uh, excuse me. In response to our prayer, in conjunction with his will and his promises. But then, why the imperative? Why the onus on the hearer? Well, I think what I think the imperative is meant to uh, command us. The imperative is a command to be a praying per, to be a praying. I was going to say body, but a praying person. But he's, he's commanding the, the, the disciples here.
1: He's talking to the disciples. I have my own little theory on this thing, which right. is probably wrong. But he's saying to these guys, uh, telling them to believe. He also, in another passage, uh, accuses them of having little faith, accusing them of not having faith, which means that the onus for not having faith was on them, which would maybe suggest that they weren't reading the word enough because faith comes from hearing the word. So maybe he was indirectly criticizing them for not studying the word enough. What do I know? All I know is he is criticizing them,
0: clearly. In a number of places he does that. He criticizes the nation of Israel. Remember, this whole thing, and we have to remember the context of this. Here's the Messiah of Israel in their midst. Who's manifested himself as Messiah, who's demonstrated he's the Messiah. The nation as a whole is rejecting him. He's, uh, he, he is regarding that rejection as lack of faith. His disciples are sort of caught up in the context of a nation and of leaders that are rejecting him while they are not rejecting him. So they're exhibiting a certain degree of faith because they're trusting. Um, minimally, but they're still wrestling with trusting him, because we see that in various episodes, but we'll also see that in terms of him repeatedly telling him he's going to die. And they're not trusting his word, trusting his revelation. Remember, this comes in the context of the fig tree that he has cursed. Now, that's, that is a demonstration of his power, But it also is a demonstration of his understanding of what has just happened with the nation. So when they're amazed at this, he's telling them that their amazement is due to their lack of faith in knowing that God is going to do what is relevant to the revelation that is given. So what is, we've been told? We've been told that the nation is rejecting him. He does this sign to accentuate that reality. And they're amazed that the tree the next morning is still, uh, is, withered. Is still withered. So in a way, they're, they're still not fully comprehending what is, what is going on. Yep. But he's not giving instruction to do anything one wants. He's giving them, because even what Yeshua did was not just do anything that he wants. He was using this as a very visible object lesson of what the nation was manifesting. And that's something very different than merely, you know, uh, saying to a mountain, be cast into the sea. But keep this in mind. If, and we don't know exactly what Yeshua may be referring to, but often in Scripture, mountains are, and we'll see this in the book of Daniel, is a is a statement regarding the kingdoms, which one day, when according to Daniel, one day when the Messiah comes, the the kingdoms of the world will be, as it were, thrown into the sea. But so the difficulty here has to do with all that is. Uh, All that is occurring and what is meant to be conveyed. But again. But it has to be understood in light of all the rest of scripture that we have. And I don't say this isn't, you know, a difficult passage in this regard. But we certainly know that, and you can test this out, you know, you could spend the rest of your life saying to the St. Gabriels, go into the sea. It's not going to go. And it won't go until it is God's determined will for it to go. I agree. But certainly, that ought not to be a deterrent for us to be praying.
1: But we still haven't all due respect. We still I have understand. Not, we still have not dealt with the imperative here and the fact that faith, to believe that we have gotten what we asked for, is a gift. So, in a sense, also, God is criticizing them for not having something only he could give them. That also drives me nuts.
0: Well, but those are two different things. You know, those are two different things. There's a gift of faith, but then there's faith. And, the, you know, the gift of faith is a, a, um, is a, a dramatic or maybe I would say uh, a unnatural ability to trust God more deeply than what one might normally experience. Absolutely. Certainly all of us have faith when we invite the Lord into our life, right? So all of us exhibit faith as that of a, a mustard seed. But the gift of faith is not what he's talking about. I
1: here. understand. But, and, and to me, the gift of faith is that God, which gives, he gives selectively. And I think one of those guys in history who probably had it was George Mueller. You know him? He always. That's definitely a gift of faith. He had a right? gift of faith, which is to me, God, through the Holy Spirit, checking any request that he is not going to bequeath. That, to me, is the gift of faith. He will not allow that individual to re- request that which is not in God's economy. You know what I'm saying? Not like an autonomous ton but but. but yeah, but now we're going down a road that's right. a little bit
0: beyond where we are here. Very, very quickly,
1: I think the problem with faith, of uh, what you brought up, Mitch, was uh, those were incidents before Jesus' death and resurrection and things changed after Pentecost, I think that's one thing we've got to keep in mind and the other thing is I think we need another
0: study on faith
1: separate from this
0: yeah, well maybe that's not a bad idea uh, but your point is well taken you know, what transpires when the Messiah is on the earth has uh, additional ramifications than after, after Pentecost and certainly after the ministry of the Apostles that's certainly true, but okay. So let's move on, so we can try to um, uh, get through some of this material. Um, so we were we were looking at uh, this Mark passage, limited uh, by faith. So we're saying the meaning of anything this is my understanding. The meaning of anything, ask anything, and it will be done is limited, first of all, by faith. And my understanding of faith is not just the ability to believe uh, what Mitch might refer to the gift of faith, but faith with regard to the nature of God and his purposes, his wisdom, his benevolence, and ultimately what is uh, his will. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the most significant part of this statement is not that God hears prayers that according to his will, but the focus, first John 5:14 and 15, is that a believer may know that his petition is heard and therefore can be confident of the answer even before he actually experiences it. God will answer us. But since God always acts in accordance with his own will, Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, um, this confidence that God will answer this prayer can only be present if it is known that the prayer is according to his will. So that's the caveat. We're to pray, and we know we're to have confidence God hears us. But how God will answer that prayer is another matter, because he answers his prayer in accordance with with his will. And unless we know what his will is, we can't be absolutely certain he's going to do this or that. That's one of the reasons why we pray to him. We request that God may do something that seems right to us. And we trust that it might be in accordance with his will for us as well. We said that, uh, and that's my second point here, is that faith in anything, the meaning of anything in Matthew 7, is limited by faith, which has to do with not just absolute belief, but faith in the context of what Messiah has done and who God is. And his power and abilities. The anything is always limited by the will of God. He's going to do what is in accordance with his will, not what's in accordance with our will. But there's a mystery here to be sure. I mean, you see like Abraham, where he discusses with God, if there's 50, if there's 40, God first says, I'm going to destroy the city. He says, if there's 50, well, if there's 50, I won't. 40 all the way down to 10. The bottom line is he does destroy the city. And, but he is willing to listen to Abraham's petitions. And he's even willing to get into conversation with him regarding his petition. But at the end of the day, his will is done. And the city is destroyed. It's not, you know, these are complicated matters. You look at a thing like uh, an episode with uh, the Ninevites. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell him in 40 days the city's going down. And he tells them that for forty days, but they repent, and when they repent, God says, "Well, i'm not going to destroy the city." Well, what changed things? What changed things was their repentance. So prior to the judgment that was to fall, he desired that they would repent. God is always desirous of repentance, and repentance can change the whole ball game. So if the people who are slated for judgment repent. They're spared. That's what happened to you and I. When we pray, we were slated for judgment. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But because of our repentance, God spared us that judgment. Well, he did that for a whole city. So, yes, it was God's will to bring judgment. But it's always God's will to bring judgment on the unrepentant individuals or nations. But when they repent, it's God's will to spare them. So in this case, they repent, God's will is done. It isn't contrary to his will, that is his will, that people would repent and be saved. It's like the passage in Chronicles. If a nation, you know, cries out to me and hears my voice and uh, turns from their ways, I will hear their prayers and I'll heal, heal their land. Well, it can be a God-forsaken nation. But if the nation turns, God will do his will, and that is spare uh, the nation and bring uh, and bring blessing on it instead further the anything is limited by prayer in the name of messiah so to pray in his name then involves not only faith in what we know about yeshua but also that the petition itself abides within the circle of who messiah is so the promise of an answer is given only to prayer, which is in harmony with the nature and revelation of Messiah himself. So when we pray in the name of the Messiah, we're saying we pray this in accordance with your will. We pray this with, in accordance with who you are and what you desire. Let me see if I can finish this section up. So we're looking at the content of prayer. We're saying we can pray the scripture, but we can also pray beyond the scripture or in addition to the scripture. When we pray in addition to the scripture, we're told that we could pray about anything, but that anything that will occur is limited by faith, by the will of God, and by prayer in the name of Messiah, which means in harmony with his character and purposes. But prayer also needs to be in conformity to the word of God. So there are three kinds of prayers may be distinguished in relation to the principle that the content of prayer is to be determined by the word of God. And so there are three different kinds of answers to prayer which are possible. First, there's prayer which rests upon the explicit commands and promises of scripture. And so you can see this in Mark chapter uh, excuse me Matthew chapter 6 verse 12. So in Matthew 6, we saw a part of this before. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So these are prayers which rest upon the explicit commands and promises of Scripture. You can see this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive, uh, forgive us of our sin and cleanse us. That's a prayer that is... As we confess our sin, those are prayers which rest on the explicit command to pray, to confess our sin, and the promise will be forgiven and cleansed. James chapter 1 verse 5, which we looked at before as well. So Matthew 6, 12, 1 John 1, 9, and James chapter 1 verse 5. There's prayer which is in harmony with the word of God, but the specific features are not stated in Scripture. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, when we pray, give us today our daily bread. Well, to pray for provision, pray for our needs is in harmony with the word of God. But the specifics about that, we're not told. We're only told whatever we need for today, we're to pray that God may provide it. You see this also in Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 through 33. Do, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what will we wear? Because God provides those things. But we can pray for those things. We're not given the specifics about what those things denote. Whatever it is we need for clothing. Whatever we need for food or housing. And some other passages. For example, Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul prays about getting to Rome. But the specifics regarding how and when and under what circumstances are not included. Acts chapter 1 verse 7 and James chapter 4 verse 15. So there are prayers. We are commanded to pray certain prayers and there are promises attached to them. We're also encouraged to pray certain prayers, but the specifics about what is to be involved in those prayers are not given. And then there are prayers which have no basis in scripture per se. For example, in James chapter four, verse three. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So here are people that are praying, but they're praying with wrong motives. So such prayer has no basis in Scripture for expected responses. Nevertheless, they're asking God for things, but their motive is not right. You see this in Psalm 106, verses 13 and 15. Psalm 106, verses 13 and 15. In Job chapter 10, verse 3. But we also find in Scripture, this is kind of interesting, especially in light of James, that there are prayers which reflect doubt. I have here in my notes just to compare Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. In chapter 3, it says, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing songs, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Messiah, giving thanks to God the Father. But the idea of admonishing one another, encouraging one another. Why? Because we're all prone, and Mitch mentioned earlier, to doubt. And there are... Psalms which reflect doubt and reasons why such prayers of doubt may be appropriate. Here are some thoughts. First of all, it's always better to express one's genuine feelings to God in prayer rather than not pray at all. And of course, Yeshua had had attacked the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. So when one doubts but does not express that doubt, then that prayer is of of a hypocritical nature. So when is doubt? not as James describes. I think it is so when one expresses one's true genuine feelings to God, not antagonistically to him, but as a reflection of one's weakness before him. Secondly, it's not inconsistent with true faith in God's mercy to be conscious of God's displeasure. So uh, sometimes we the psalmists express doubt, um, realizing that He knows God's not pleased with this state I am in, but it's nevertheless the state that I am in. And often, thirdly, often these expressions of doubt is a preliminary expression of their need. Lord, I doubt, help my unbelief, as we see in uh, Matthew as well. But in all these things, I think when we see this variety of expressions and attitudes, I think all of it in Scripture is meant to draw our attention to the fact that the Lord wants us to pray. He does not want anything to circumvent our connecting with him and our conversing with him and our communing with him. When we doubt, we bring that doubt before him and we say, Lord, help me with my lack of confidence. Help me with the questions that I have. Help me to trust you despite the ambiguities that uh, are on my heart and on my mind, uh, etc. Now, all this is important for us to wrestle with, because if we're going to be a congregation of prayers, then we need to, to realize the variety of contexts in which we pray. So that when we pray verbally, uh, we can join in our prayer together. We can express our sin and confess our sin. We can express our weakness and confess our weakness. We can express our faith despite our weakness and alongside of our weakness. We have to be cautious of demanding things of God because God always and only ultimately does his will. That when we come to God in prayer, we come boldly, but boldly does not mean with a sense of... of. Uh, um, What's the word? Arrogance. Boldly means to come with a sense of confidence in what God has done for us, what Messiah has done for us, which enables us to come into his presence. It isn't with a sense that we can demand of God because we are now his children. We can come before him in the sense of expectation because God loves us and because God has done great things for us. And so we want to be ones that pray in that fashion. It's important to know these things because when we pray for individuals, especially strangers that may be visitors and they have a need and they come into a body of believers and through all the things that go on through the greeting in which they first see a smiling person who expresses love for them to uh, the singing of songs to his glory, to where they hear testimony shared, where we greet one another, we come alongside one another. Then when we pray with them, we also have to be sensitive uh, to be ministering to them. And our prayer, not only is a prayer directed to God, but they're hearing that prayer. And thus the words we use, the manner in which we speak, the length with which we speak, all begins to convey something to them about the nature of God. And if we are not careful, we can turn people off to God when we desire to do a good thing. And in desiring to do a good thing and thinking we're doing a good thing, we could be doing a very bad thing. And so we always want to come with humility. We always want to come with a servant heart. We're not here to preach to people through prayer. We're not here to demand things of God. We're not here to try to show somebody up. Look what we believe and you don't. And those kinds of attitudes. We're here as servants. And so the Lord is saying to us, I want you to pray with this person. I have brought them here to you this morning. This is God's gift to us. And this is God working in their heart so that when we pray for them, we have to be very careful that we are truly manifesting God to them and that we are treating this individual very carefully because it is God's movement in their heart that brought them here. And now you have the opportunity to bring comfort and life and light. You have the opportunity to bring God into their very sphere on the heels of a service and of people that they have met. So we don't want to monopolize their time. We don't want to preach at them. We don't want to sound demanding and then people get all kind of nervous. We simply want to bring the prayer very quickly before the Lord, showing them that, that they care. We're not looking to get into long conversations with them to find out everything about them and all that they wanted. They say, would you pray for me? Because that's all you need to know. God knows everything. And we just bring it before them. It's not a counseling session. It's a time of prayer. And I'll give you a very quick, uh, short example. We'll stop. But last night at Yom Kippur, um, uh, I just don't want to mention her name for the tape, but uh, an older woman was here. And she had visited, and on the way out, she shook my hand and um, expressed how much she appreciated the service. And she said, I want you to pray for me uh, because of some things that were going on with her. And I said, okay. Uh, and she didn't say, like, right now, or I need you to pray for me right now, but I like, just, I'd like you to pray for me. So I said, well, can I take a moment right now? And she said, yes, but I don't want to tie you up with all this. Pain. I said, it's going to be a very short prayer. And so I just put my hand on her shoulder. And I said, Lord, would you bring healing to this woman who has requested um, prayer in her behalf? Would you help her and make her well? Amen. That's all it was. I didn't ask her, what is it that's ailing you? Where do you need to be, you know? I just, was very, I just wanted to pray with her very quickly because she wanted to get going. She made reference. There's a lot of people here that night that uh, wanted to see me. I wasn't going to take her aside. It's already late. All you need to do is say, let me just take one moment with you. Lord, touch this woman, bring healing to her. Let her know of your great love for you. Amen. And, you know, that's all we need to do. And so we don't want to make this uh, something that begins to be unnerving uh, with people. And if there's a need for lengthier times, you can always say, hey, if you'd like to, to pray longer, um you know, give me a call. Here's my number. Leave it up to them. Don't answer people's numbers. Just say, here, if you want to pray long, you give me a call. I'll pray with you. Or if you want to pray, talk with someone about what's going on. You want to talk to our pastor. Uh, here's the number here and you can get a hold of him or something like that. We don't have to not be available. But in these moments, it's short to the point. And, uh, you know, there may be exceptions that prove the rule, but let them be the exceptions. Absolutely absolutely yeah that 's what 's happening, and you know it 's like anything else. there are times you know you go on an airplane and you can spend the whole ride talking to someone it 's like you know you 've developed a relationship, and sometimes it doesn 't happen, but sometimes it does, so we have to be sensitive to that well, okay, why don 't we pray and it 's nine o 'clock, so those that need to get going you 're free to go. Uh, if you want to uh, ask anything, want to talk a little further. Uh, we'll do that. Now, we're not going to meet next Wednesday. Next week is uh, the only time I have to move. So, you know, I'm I'm just clearing the deck so I can get all my stuff packed. We haven't even started. Um, Things have just been so so busy uh, for us. You know, we've had weddings in August, uh, actually June, July and August. We've had the High Holy Days. We've had all kinds of things. I can't remember them. <laughs> but, uh, so, next Wednesday, we won't have uh, a meeting uh, on this, but then we'll meet the following. And we're, we have shalom fellowship this Friday, but we won't have it the following. Is that the sisterhood meeting anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, is that right? I thought it was just the, okay, I've been doing it for how long, and I never realized. I just wait for your email. I guess I'm on to it. Uh, then, <laughs> um, so, and I won't be here, uh, this Sunday is Sukkot, I'll be here, but the following one, I will not be here, Josh Sophia, who is the new branch director of for Jesus, he's going to be here, he and his family have been worshiping with us, so I asked if he'd like to share, so he'll be uh, speaking that Sunday, a date on when I won't be here? Is that what you're asking? That's that's October the uh, 7th. 7th. Is Sunday. I won't be here. Now, it may be that if the move, everything goes smoothly, I might be here and I'll help out with the worship team and all, but I've got Josh speaking. So I may be here, but I'm looking for Sunday to be the day that I'm going to be able to clean up the house we're leaving because the eighth we're out of there. So it only gives me that day to do it. Uh, what day? Next Wednesday. It's sat- it would be Saturday the 6th. That's, that's when probably all, a lot of the stuff. But I'll send out an email or something. To, let me see how far we get going and stuff. So I'm not gonna be doing anything until probably Monday. There you go, the debate. By the way, uh, you mentioned the debate. This Sunday night, I think on Fox, they're playing that movie, 2016. If you didn't see it, I I think it's on this Sunday night. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, really? Oh, they're not. Okay. Well, let's... Did I pray... No, so let's pray, and uh, you guys can go. Father, we thank you for this evening. We're grateful to think about prayer. Uh, It's a challenging discipline, but it's also a rewarding endeavor, and so I pray that our congregation will get more and more immersed in it and that we might learn to do it better and better as we grow in you. Be with each and everyone who's here this night. Give them a safe trip home. We pray in Messiah's name.